if uh, you have a particular question, um, there are a couple of mics as well, or you may write your question down on a uh, piece of paper and just hand it forward to somebody else, or perhaps you know that your neighbor asked the question and your small group and you'd like to have it answered, you might write their question down as well. And uh, we'll have these questions come forward to uh, Dr. Grisanti, if we could have him up here and uh, let him uh, answer some of these that might um, be on your mind. Jim has a microphone, I have a microphone. We'll be covering two halves of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the congregation. So I think the orange one, is that on? Okay. All right. If you have a question, just raise really? your hand. And I'm on, right? Yeah. By the way, the three magic words that I uh, will resort to at times, at times are, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know everything. Okay. If you don't have any questions, I will ask questions. Ah, there we go. And if you could say your name before it, and uh, we have a, a recorded. Name's Ken Burden, and uh, my understanding of the Jewish sacrificial system is that they made sacrifices for unintended sins. Anyone who sinned uh, knowingly was supposed to be cut off from his people. And it kind of bothers me, because when I sit in here, like this morning, confessing my sins, I'm confessing things I I know I'm doing wrong. Uh, so am I misunderstanding the uh, the Jewish system? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I would say that it would be a longer, longer answer in those passages and the Pentateuch, but the intentional sin is uh, that is being condemned is a kind of a in-your-face intentional sin. I mean, we all choose to sin at times. You know, you lose your temper, you get angry, you say a word, and you meant it, and then, Lord willing, your heart's broken and you seek forgiveness. It's, and there are some sins we do, and especially in an area that Joe may ask me about, uh, on a ritual purity, sometimes you do things you didn't mean to stray or go over a line. And there are some things we do that may be offensive. So I think the intentional, unintentional differentiation isn't just some volition involved, unforgivable. I think it'd be more of an in-your-face, intentional uh, act of rebellion. And the unintentional, the unintentional sin normally refers to something else than um, like accidental sins in a world where if you did this or that, you're ritually impure and you weren't able to offer service to the Lord or offer the tabernacle. No, uh, if we may, another question. Uh, the other thing I don't understand is how are the people that lived a distance from Jerusalem supposed to uh, comply with the sacrificial system? Well, that, there are three pilgrims. Well, number one, you had, you had uh, Levites who lived in the area. And there were some, like, ties that were gathered, but uh, you had three pilgrimage feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, uh, Passover, March, April, Pentecost, May, June, uh, tabernacles, booths, September or so. And uh, in, in those feasts, every man was supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And quite often they'd bring their families. 
And so it wasn't like today where you, you know, say something offensive to a brother in Christ and you need to go to him and take care of it. It would be you would, if nothing else, if you're that distance away, then you might bring uh, an offering to address those issues at one of those pilgrimage feasts. Yeah, so they wouldn't have all those sacrifices everywhere throughout Israel. And so it wasn't that everybody came and offered a sacrifice every day. It was more, there are certain issues they were addressing, and then they'd be gathered together by that sacrifice. You have to remember, too, that the sacrificial system is a concrete action of submission to God's will and seeking for forgiveness or celebrating some goodness that doesn't take away the fact that your relationship with God is by faith and that he forgives you as that great God with eternal implications by faith. And those, those acting out, of the sacrifices were done maybe more periodically to help deepen the conviction of the wrong and uh, feel the pain of the sin that was part of, that didn't let me, you were a loser in a bone for three months. You were a sinner, unforgiven for three months. It was, you were, you wanted to maintain, you wanted to act out, to live out your conviction, your need for forgiveness every three months if you lived way up north. All right, so my name is Nathan. Um, so I had a question, just, we talked about uh, Micah this morning and um, we were talking about the audience being uh, God's people, but at the beginning of Micah, um, it, it starts out with, hear, O you peoples, plural, and then, it, and then it says, listen, you know, everyone to the ends of the earth, I think, or something like that. Um, it, is, it seems like um, he's, the message is intended for everyone, and he's using uh, Israel um, as to show the judgment of the people of God, um, to bring everyone to... Uh, or to help every, every nation understand, not just Israel. So is the message in Micah directly to Israel, or is it to all peoples? Yeah, you have, indirect, you have direct and indirect, right? Or immediate and ultimate audiences. And I would say in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, Israel is at the center of attention. They're God's covenant people. The prophets are calling them to repent of their covenant treachery and, their, and seek God's forgiveness. And so I'd say at the forefront, forefront of Micah's attention, the immediate sense, Israel, the covenant nation, is his audience. But as Genesis 12.3, and you will all the family of the earth be blessed, and God has demanded that every person from every nation comes to him by faith for forgiveness, and if they don't, their eternal consequences, then his, his appeal is that others are listening in, right? That what he is doing in, 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 in offering forgiveness or pronouncing judgment and God's people for the covenant treachery is for everybody in the sense of God's going to hold them to the same bar of justice he holds them to. So even though maybe not many are listening in, right, not many are receiving the, the prophetic message of Micah, there are Gentiles who are going to hear about it, and it's meant to convict their hearts, to recognize that in all, there's a sovereign, powerful God to whom they have to give an account. And he expects a life that matches his standard. I mean, some people in the book of Amos, because the book of Amos starts with these judgment speeches against all the peoples around Israel, including Judah, and it's like, well, how can he expect them to 
obey him. Well, he's the creator God. <laughs> he's the one who made the earth. And so he doesn't have different rules. He expects them to depend on him, to have a faith relationship with him, and live a life that honors his name, or they will be held accountable. So I would say that there's a direct, immediate, and an indirect, or ultimate, or more distant audience, because God is always interested in the world, right? I don't want to take away the focus on Israel, but there's always, God has a plan for the world. It's never about, all the Old Testament isn't just about Israel. Hi, I'm Crystal, and I'd just like to What's ask... What's your name again? Uh, Crystal. Crystal, as right. Like the Rock, yeah. And, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just call you The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd just like to ask, how'd you first learn about Christ, and when did you come to him? Yeah, it, um, I grew up in a, a Christian home. My God had gloriously saved my mom and my dad, out of, my dad out of a, of a Catholic home, a good Italian Catholic home, and I can tell you that story. My mom was a foster child in some rough homes, and the Lord put her in a home of believers, and so she knew Christ. So, but I grew up in that home where they were in a church. Dad was a deacon, mom served, and I heard the gospel in all kinds of settings. And I think, I believe that I was five when, having heard Sunday school and BBS and the gospel at home, I remember going to my mom and being crushed by my sin and wanting forgiveness and kind of scared of hell too. So I asked the Lord to forgive me for my sins. And it wasn't like I was an angel after that. I mean, I, <laughs> the Lord saved me from a number of things, but I brought something with me in my heart. So, you know, I had to seek forgiveness and I had the little rebellion moments. But I think from the time I was five, I wrestled with that when I was a senior in high school because it seemed like a long time ago, but I could see the work of God in my life. I could see fruit, conviction. I think I, I felt... God wanted me to serve him as a missionary when I was like fourth or fifth grade through a missionary conference our church had. And it wasn't like I was super spiritual. It just was God was at work. And so later on when I wondered about it and I, I reaffirmed my faith and I looked back, I realized, you know, there was indication. So I don't scoff a, a young conversion, but like with our own kids, we, a number of them were saved earlier in life than later. And we never tried to press that. We never tried to push them into it. We wanted it to be that it was their initiative. They were burdened with their sin. They wanted to know how to have forgiveness that the Bible talked about. So I was a young boy. Dr. Crisanti, why don't you read the first written one? There? All right, so how is a church that's relationship-driven obviously different than one that is law or rule, teaching, I wouldn't use the word teaching, but law-rule-driven, and then how does the church move toward a relationship-driven focus and away from a law-driven? And so on the one hand, I, I, I would, would say a church would only do it as individuals in that church are pursuing this, right? So I don't see a top-down in the sense of creating a program that would do this, but I do think that a church could model things, emphasize things that would help, but it would start with individuals. And so in my mind, my point is, as a starting point, would be I, I'm, I'm burdened because we, we have this in Christianity and evangelical Christianity, we have this, again, undercurrent of a kind of a performance treadmill that the reason I do these things are they're on the list. And, um, and, and we get into a, a, a rhythm, a, a habit 
of being an autopilot. I don't know if you've ever done this. I'm not a uber introspective guy, but um, you just come to the end of a week and you think about what you've done, taught lessons, counseled, shared Christ, whatever. And you, and you think, where was God in all of that? I mean, did I read the Bible this week? Because I was busy? Did I even pray before I taught those lessons or met with that difficult person or shared Christ with a lost person? Or is this me? I'm just kind of going through the motions. I'm doing stuff. I'm, I'm checking that off the list. I'm doing what I should be doing, and it's just an autopilot. And I, I describe that as a practical atheism, right? I'm really functioning as if there is no God. Well, that's a horrible place to be long term. So I, what, I want, what I want is, is I want to keep before me, so I'm thinking the starting point for me as an individual and for you is to keep before me passages that celebrate the greatness and majesty of God. So there are psalms, there are prayers in both uh, Paul and the Old Testament that just give this litany of the awesome characteristics of God and the awesome deeds of God. Because then it, I'm convinced with the, uh, did you use the words upward, inward, outward here in, the, in, in this meeting? Okay, well, I did it, I think I did it the TMS event, but I, there's these three non-profound words that are a big part of my life, upward, inward, outward, and the point is, as we all, we normally think about what we're called to do as Christian, and we think of the outward, the list, the to-dos and the to-don'ts, and, and those are important, right? I'm not at all diminishing the importance of those or making them unvaluable, but I, we start with the outward, and we're starting at the wrong place, because I don't have what it takes to do the outward with consistency and longevity, and so where do I need to start? Upward. Now it's kind of like, well, duh. But the thing is, living that way, right? I, I, need to, I need to be thinking with regularity on who God is and what God does and just be in awe, amazed, overwhelmed by his majesty and greatness in a way that just grabs my heart. That leads to the inward. It sets my heart on fire, motivates, enables. His model is there for me and how to, how to put his character on display, because I'm spending time thinking about who he is and what he does, and I can't do everything, but I'm not going to be omnipresent, right? But there are lots of character traits that show up that, again, should, I should be so amazed at who he is that I, my heart is set on fire, and I just am so thrilled that I can be in a relationship with him by faith, and that, that I have the chance to put his character on display, that I can have a life that's not about junk, and meaningless things, but a life that lives out eternal truth. I said this the other night. I, you know, I'd want you to know that, um, I hope it's obvious already, that um, I love my wife Martha with all my heart. I want to honor God in pursuing purity. I want to honor her in my relationship with her, and I want God to be put on display. And so I'm convicted in this area because I don't have it in me. I love my wife as I should. I can love her better than Bob and Joe and Sam down the road. But that's not what I'm called to, right? I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And on my own, I'm toast. So, 
in my desire to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I, I try to think about who God is and what he does. And, and as, as that happens, and, and I'm just thinking here, communion and thinking what Christ did for us on Calvary, my thought was, Lord, help me to go home and love her better, to love her more consistently, to love her more sacrificially. Thinking about my kids and how can I have a stronger relationship with them and help them understand God better. So my point is, as I would say, it starts individually, but a church that is trying to get our head upward. We're trying to revel in who God is and what he does in a way that sets our heart on fire, and then the overflow of that kind of heart is our heart of obedience. And the problem is we all too often start at the wrong place. And um, it ends up being treadmill, right? It ends up being activity, and, and, and the activity of obedience is not a bad thing. I'm not saying don't obey. I mean, sometimes you obey just because it's the right thing to do. I understand that. If it's raining outside, which it rarely does in Southern California, we moved there in El Nino, right? And so if it's raining outside and we didn't put the garbage down at the curb and wife says to me, hey, sweetheart, would you, would you, would you be glad to take, roll the garbage out to the curb? Well, it's one of the last things I'd want to do. I'm dry. I'm comfortable. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and this, God help me, have a good attitude here, right? <laughs> the point is, it isn't that you wait to do things that are right just because of an attitude issue, but I'm not content with being there all the time. And so as I think about who God is and what he's done and my heart is set on fire, that motivation, that want to, that enablement that helps me be who I couldn't be on my own to do what I couldn't do on my own is more consistently present, but... I'm a bonehead, right? I have a sinful nature, and so it isn't perfectly present. So that's where it starts. And so it just is, as you and I cultivate our walk, growth in our walk with the Lord, we're, we're living a theocentric life with a God focus. And so that means that in lessons and in sermons along the way, you, you want to spend time on who God is because that's an important part of the answer to life. Why God does what he does, like tonight with Nahum, there's some bad news in Nahum. And even how God's presented is a tough presentation of God. But that, that theological understanding of who he is helps us grasp the message of Nahum. And so that's where I'm, I would start. I would also say that just you're reminded that, you know, as you think about how we live, it, it isn't first and foremost, you know, brownie points in heaven, credit, you know, just tasks, lists. I need to understand what God asks of me, but it should be the overflow of our heart that I, I don't share Christ with the lost just because I want to be able to say yes if somebody asks me and keep them off my back. I, I, want, I want to share Christ with the lost because there's an awesome God who has demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners to provide salvation for people around me and on the vehicle, one of them. And so that, that relationship with him and my, my overwhelming gratitude for who he is is what motivates, sets my heart on fire to live that way. And again, I would tell you, I, I struggle in those areas. I, it isn't like I've arrived, but I'm, I'm trying to keep my up. So that, that, that would be, there's lots of things to say there. So I would just say, in your own life, uh, as you read through scripture, I'm always thinking about who God is, what God does. And sometimes I'm gonna mix in there certain Psalms, certain prayers that just celebrate who God is. I don't wanna forget that. I don't wanna get you know, insensitive to it. The other side of the equation is just 
Remember that in the midst of activity, relationships have value. My relationship with the Lord, it's a relationship focus. It's a growing in a, my understanding of and pursuit of him, a, a motivating me to live a life of loyalty as part of a relationship. It's not just a list of requirements. Because again, I, I don't know about you, but um, I'm a, what Justin said over here about Lebanon, about uh, spending time with people. I mean, I do think in America, a very task-focused place that we can be ships passing in the night and that we, we, don't, we don't see the value of relationships like we should that show up in spending time together. So I, as, as a former elder, I was an elder to church for 15 years and longer story there, but yeah, I've told elder boards and missionary teams, if I could talk to Justin, I was hoping to just visit and see how things are going and that would be one of my exhortations. Um, to never devalue or neglect the pursuit of relationships of people on your team. The point is with my kids, I, as a dad, yeah, we're mom and dad are the authority figure. We talked about being benevolent dictators, right? So, yeah, I'm not shying away from the fact that especially when they were younger, I was an authority figure, but I, I still am a shepherd. But what do I have to say of significance to them that is going to impact their heart if I'm not pursuing them? I mean, that's where relationships are part of the deal, right? I mean, I just, to have a relationship-driven life where relationships are an important part of me being able to bring God's word to bear in this or that circumstance, I just think we need to buy into that, right? So a church needs to have programs, sure, you know, SWAT and EPIC and whatever, small groups, and all those things are important ways of, that the elders are trying to think through how do we help people appropriate, understand, and live out God's word. I'm totally with that. So I'm not faulting programs. But it just would be, as you think about the way you spend your time, you know, maybe less of the Seattle Seahawks and more of, and it could be any team, right? I, it isn't just the Seattle Seahawks are losers and don't, don't watch them. It just is, I would say, relationships need to be a bigger part of what's at the core of who we are. That's the other thing, I think we, we got time, time for one more, one oh, more question. Great. And we need to go. Nathan? Andrew? Oh, all right. You had your hand up first. Go ahead. Well, this is a kind of random question about Jonah. Um, you know, like the cartoons about Jonah or whatever, he's always just kind of like hanging out in the belly of the fish for three days. But like in, uh, in Matthew 12, you know, Jesus parallels uh, his time in the heart of the earth with Jonah being in the belly of the fish. And Jonah says, you know, he cries out from shale. And he said uh, in chapter 5 that the waters close in over, over me to take my life. Did Jonah actually die and is resurrected when he's vomited out? Or is he alive for the three days? Whoa. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew? <laughs> All right, so... Next question. You know, it, it, what it is is, uh, you know, it's an interpretive decision that scholars are on both sides of the fence. I, it was not a pleasant experience. It wasn't like he was down there playing computer games in this roomy room. I mean, he was probably sandwiched in there and thought he was going to die. It does use language about the depths of the sea. and it, Either way, I mean, I, I don't know that I can say for sure. 
I, I, go, I can go either way. I, scholars are on both sides of that. And so if he died and resurrected, there's a tighter parallelism with what Jesus said, right? But there's no doubt it was a, like a, if it wasn't, it was a near-death experience that provides a, a pattern that still, and Jesus' main point was just as he was three days in the belly of the whale, Jesus will be three days in the grave. I don't have to make it tighter for my excitement to have a better preaching point. So I'm not sure. 